Well, good morning, everyone. I hope you're all uh, doing well. You'll notice that the uh, setting for this week's sermon is a little more casual and at home. I figured since uh, you've been all tuning in from home, why not preach a sermon from home, which is the uh, first time I've ever done this. So I have about 20 minutes here where I've um, basically thrown my family out of the house, and uh, so we should get to it before they return. Well, welcome to Pentecost Sunday. Uh, In the history of the church, Pentecost is associated with waiting. And why would Pentecost be associated with waiting? Well, we find out at the end of the book of Luke, uh, Jesus gives gives these words to his apostles before he uh, ascends into heaven. It says in Luke 24, 49, I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city. In other words, wait until you've been clothed with power from on high. Wow, I don't know about you, but waiting has become an an everyday occurrence during this pandemic. It's not just associated with, for instance, for folks in, in uh, in the church, in the Christian tradition with Pentecost, but waiting has become an everyday part of life. Did you know that I ordered, you wouldn't know because I haven't told really any of you, but um, I ordered a variety of items from uh, a local merchant uh, who says, yes, curbside pickup is an option three weeks ago. And as of the composition, the date of the composition of this sermon, uh, still they are not ready to be picked up. And lo and behold, in the intervening period, they've sold some of those items so that there are none left to sell me. Well, they've already taken my money too. So yeah, it's a, it's a lot of waiting. And I think over the next year and a half, Christians and non-Christians alike are going to be walking into greater levels of patience associated with hopefully patience all the waiting uh, that we have to do so you know the idea of patience and waiting it's it's going to be a virtue I think uh, forced upon us the thing about waiting is that um, in in your Christian walk and so forth uh, good waiting is waiting that's associated with patience so to wait well as it were is to be patient And that just kind of naturally, that patience is very hard to do on our own because our own kind of fleshly, sinful desire is to have immediate gratification, to have things done for us uh, right away. But the call will be during these periods of waiting, and I'm not necessarily talking about waiting for things that we would uh, buy online, although maybe that's, that's going to be part of it for you, is to develop uh, trust. Trust in God that he's in charge of all of these things that are happening around us. So the waiting, waiting well, involves patience. But to have patience involves trust that God has got our backs, that God is in control of the things around us. So with that kind of concept in mind, when we look at uh, Acts, which is the sequel to Luke, we see that the disciples entered into a period of 50 days of waiting. So not quite a a bit longer than I had to wait for the things that I've ordered. Um, They were, you know, what, 
four times seven, four weeks. I'm at three weeks. Anyway, all these things, all these, that is the apostles in Acts 1.14, all these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer. Together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers. See, they waited and trusted the words of Jesus that the Holy Spirit would come as Jesus had promised. And lo and behold, shortly after, the day of Pentecost comes. And although they didn't know the Spirit would be poured out at Pentecost, it was poured out on Pentecost Day. And the power and the presence and uh, words of salvation from God were made manifest to those gathered in the upper room. The wait was over. And for the apostles, this is a God that can be trusted, who will show up. And we'll see that, you know, you may know this already, but living life with God, well, involves trust. And sometimes it involves waiting, but fundamentally, it's about trust, isn't it? And, uh, and so this day of Pentecost comes, they trusted God, and look what happens. When the day of Pentecost had come, Acts 2-1, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. So what's interesting about this is, yes, the Holy Spirit comes. He falls upon them. So the words of Jesus, yes, are, are totally trustworthy and true, right? So the Spirit comes, but the fulfillment of the promise of Jesus is very unexpected. This idea of tongues of fire, these blobs of fire descending down, landing upon their heads, is probably not what the disciples had in mind when Jesus says, you'll be clothed with power from on high. But in the Old Testament, fire that talks, well, it's kind of a thing. And if you look at Sinai, right, there's, there's uh, lightning, um, thunder, and from the midst of that lightning and thunder comes the voice of God, doesn't he, giving, giving the Ten Commandments. But since this manifestation of God in Pentecost was so unexpected, well, there were kind of a variety of responses to this thing. And it wasn't clear kind of to the people observing this, it wasn't clear to them exactly what is going on. Now, the thing that is happening, it's during the festival of Pentecost. So there was Jews from all over the Roman Empire. And in fact, in fact if you read the list of Jews who were gathered there and uh, beginning at verses 5 through to 12, you can, if you look at the uh, locations, it's actually from the four points of the compass that all of these Jews uh, are gathered together. And, and when these Jews see these things, some are amazed and perplexed. It's like, whoa, what's going on here? But others sneer. It's like they're very skeptical, maybe a better word is cynical about this, this, this manifestation of God that has been poured out. And they're like, yeah, I don't think so. But before we break down some of the responses to this, what is actually happening with these tongues appearing on the heads of the disciples? Well, basically, as all of those who observe recognize, they are hearing the gospel presented in their own language. 
Now, the thing is, with the Jews living in Palestine, the language spoken there was Aramaic, which is kind of a, related to Hebrew, but it was, uh, it was Aramaic. Won't get into the backgrounds of that. So, Aramaic. Now, the disciples are from Galilee, many of them, probably from Jerusalem as well, but certainly the 12 apostles um, are where Jesus called them during his Galilean ministry. And Aramaic is probably the language they would know, Greek probably as well. But the, the Jews from Jerusalem that are gathered from around the empire would know languages that are like indigenous languages, languages, local dialects associated with, with different parts of the empire. Like uh, in Lyconia, people speak the Lyconian language. And when uh, Paul and Barnabas, you know, heal a, a guy that's been paralyzed, people start shouting in the Lyconian language, right? So not like Aramaic and so on. So, so these languages are very unique and different. And here it is, these uneducated apostles are all of a sudden speaking articulately in a language that they would never otherwise know, and that, that is tongues. But what's happening through this is the gospel of God is being made known to people who really don't know it. Now, but you might be thinking, well, these are Jews. Wouldn't they have some awareness of Jesus and so forth? Yes, most certainly. But Peter in his sermon says to them, you who are listening, you who crucified Jesus. Now, it's not that all of these people gathered together had some role to play in the crucifixion of Jesus. We know generally it's the, it's the religious leaders, the temple leaders from the Gospels who, who crucified Jesus and so forth. But for, from, a, from an ancient perspective, there's this thing called corporate solidarity, where if one or two people or the leadership of a particular group are guilty of something, everyone is guilty. So from the perspective of Peter and how ancient people would be reading this text is, is that the, the Jews as a, as a group for crucifying Jesus are, are guilty for this thing. And imagine what's happening. The gospel of God is, is coming to those, giving them a second chance, saying, hey, this salvation is for you. And God starts with those who actually brought about the crucifixion of Jesus, who, who resisted Jesus throughout his ministry. He is coming to them to bring salvation. So this Holy Spirit that comes from God tells us about the nature and the character of God, that God is fundamentally about the other, about bringing, about bringing salvation, about demonstrating mercy um, to those who need it most. And he starts with his own people. Think about it like this. Some of my students talk about me behind my back. I get it. I understand it. And uh, what my mm, spies tell me, I don't know what people tell me about what people are saying about me, is that it's one of two things. That I got a really good sense of humor, more quirky, so define that how you want, um, and that I grade too hard. So the way this plays out in classes is that I notice some groups of students, if the context is right, say what I'm teaching or talking about, they're waiting for me to crack a joke because they know that I'll joke about certain things and they find it funny. And sure enough, I say it, they've been looking for it. And it's like, ah, ha, 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 Rob said his joke. So they get to know who I am. On the grading side, it's kind of interesting to two uh, opposite spectrums, isn't it? I give students great joy or I, engender within them great rage because of the bad grades. Anyway, side point. So 
On the other side with the grading piece, it's like students that take my courses after a while know that I'm going to hammer them for poor grammar, sentence mechanics, in addition to the content, right? But I give them constructive feedback, say you need to change this, adjust this, there's a split infinitive, blah, 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 and they become better writers. So, so these students begin to know my characteristics, my traits, my sense of humor, what I'm looking for in grading, and, and all of a sudden, yeah, they're, they're full of joy and getting good grades, great, as they come to know me more. And that's the thing with the Holy Spirit, is that, that the things that the Spirit does tells us about the nature of God, because the, the Spirit represents the nature of God, and isn't it neat? The very first thing that the, that the Holy Spirit does when he's poured out upon the Jews is to call people back to God, but people who deserve it the least, right? Because those were the ones who, who had the message of the gospel presented to them. They resisted it. They rejected it intentionally. And here God is because of his great mercy, calling them back to himself. And so, so, and that's the way it is with Jesus, isn't it? That he only does what he sees the Father doing, and there's Jesus hanging out with the tax collectors. So as a result, this God is for us. He, he is not against us, and so he is a God who can be trusted. But not everyone is all re always ready to jump on board, right? And so going back to this two responses, amazement and perplexity, right? Amazement. Wow, what is this? I think I might want to commit to it. The downright rejection. On the other hand, we get different perspectives on uh, our responses, rather, um, to this act of salvation, the Holy Spirit being uh, poured out. So the first group, they're amazed and perplexed. They don't tr totally understand it, but they're really interested in it, it seems, right? And then when Peter preaches his sermon in Acts chapter 2, which is a very short sermon, if you read through it, done in a minute. Um, it's abbreviated. These are the ones who likely respond positively to the message of Peter and do repent and are baptized for the salvation of their sins. But the other group who sneer and are be like, ah, they're drunk with new wine. Why are they babbling on like that? Chances are they align with the religious leaders who could have been likely witnessed this thing as well, who have made a decision to be in opposition to this new act of God. And, and this way of relating to God repeats itself in history whenever the Holy Spirit is poured out in an unexpected way. Within the church, there have been those who have been like, yeah, I want this. There are others who are like, I don't think so. This is just too different. And, and even this is something that the, the, the apostles experience and struggle with. Peter in Acts chapter 10, right, has this vision of a sheet coming down as one colleague has put it, and I shared with you before, but it's too good not to repeat. We see, repeat, uh, <laughs> meet on a peat for sheep, for, ah, oh, dang it. Meet on the sheet for peat to eat. Got it. This isn't being edited today. This is just raw sermonizing. Okay, so so this comes down, Acts chapter 10, this vision. And, um, and, and there are all these unclean animals. And uh, what does Peter say? The Lord says to him in Acts 10, 13, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. The voice said to him again, hey, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times, and the thing was suddenly taken up to heaven. Look at what the words are. 
what God has made clean, you must not call profane. Here's the issue. Here's why we get differing responses to unexpected moves of God. Peter held on to a way of relating to God that was in existence before Jesus came. And when Jesus came, some of the beliefs that Jews had were null and void. And that is, for example, ritual purity laws. Jesus reframed what is clean and what is unclean. Because in the sanctifying presence of Jesus, through whose shed blood there is purity, impurity now isn't from stuff that we touch, but rather real impurity is from stuff that comes from within. Because that is what God was always concerned about, right? The internal state of our heart. So Jesus comes and says, no, it's not stuff on the outside which you've thought all along, and which, which, which is revealed in the Old Testament, right? There's no question about that. But when the fullest revelation of God comes and says, hey, it's not stuff on the outside anymore, but stuff on the inside, well, we kind of need to listen to that. And, and so it's, it's not touching a dead body. It's not uh, bumping up against Gentiles. It's not about bleeding anymore. It's rather about uh, lust, idolatry bitterness. Jesus says the things that come from within, these things are what defile, and it's these things that can bring, um, that Jesus can bring deliverance from, and healing and forgiveness. But Peter was still operating under an old paradigm, and so his beliefs were formed and held on to, let me put it this way, he held on to these beliefs and ideas to the exclusion of his relationship with Jesus Christ. The beliefs and ideas that he had were not held under the, the microscope of, of Jesus and his shed blood, which in our relationship with God and what God is doing in the moment, in, in, you know, in the light of Scripture, in the light of the New Testament, that has to be the final arbitrator of what, what is legit and what is not. And so, so Peter had to go through a complete change of, of his thinking um, in relation to what beliefs that I have, how are they actually servicing and falling in line with what God is doing in the moment, right? And, and so Peter eventually makes that, experiences that when the Holy Spirit is poured out on a bunch of unclean Gentiles, and all of a sudden, boom, right? His whole paradigm is shifted, and he's like, God is doing a new thing. These ritual purity laws were only keeping us separate from people. And God is all about people. He's all about redeeming people, especially unclean people. And Jews who were hostile and resistant towards his son, he's still about redeeming them. So God wants to remove all of the barriers, all of the walls that would get in the way of the business of redemption that's most fully seen in Jesus Christ. And so when we think about what God is doing in the moment and what God wants to do in our lives, the Holy Spirit, what God wants to do in, our, in the lives of others, in the life of our church, what we think about what God is doing in the moment has to be informed by the person of Jesus Christ and the mission of God. If, if we have beliefs and ideas that are formed outside of Jesus Christ and outside of God's mission, 
it's very easy then for us to put up walls and barriers to what God is doing in the moment and so fall into the same trap as the religious leaders. And this is where trust is key, right? Trust and reliance upon the goodness of God that, that he has our best interests at heart, that he has the best interests of others at heart. Why? Because it's coming from his heart, which is all about love and mercy and redemption to the other. That, that's the key thing. God exists for, for the other. The Trinity is a manifestation of relationality, of, of living for the sake of the other. And so when we think about living life with the Holy Spirit, although when God pours out his spirit, we may be perplexed by it, we may be amazed by it, we want to basically take everything that we are thinking about a certain experience of the Spirit or what we hear about how the Spirit is working and take those and, and let Jesus shine his light upon them. And that is the spoken voice of Jesus through his Spirit, but also the, the written voice of Jesus, as it were, right, through his word, for instance, in the Gospels, in the New Testament, and, and, and have beliefs and values formed and shaped by the person of Jesus, which is always outwardly looking and outwardly focused. And so for some of us, this may involve rethinking long-held beliefs about the kinds of people that we make keep company with, about the, the kinds of people that show up at church on Sunday morning. What if God were to do something outside of the church that made us rethink even the nature of church as showing up at a building on Sunday morning? I mean, if you think about it, like the church, Jesus never went to church. Paul never went to church. They all went to synagogues. But the early Christians were eventually thrown out of the synagogue, so they began to meet in house churches, then with Constantine in the 4th century and so forth. They began to meet in more uh, established buildings, basilicas and so forth, which had other purposes. But see, like the physical space, this is just an example of how God may want to turn things upside down in our lives for the sake of his mission. All of these, these buildings and these structures and the ways in which Christianity took shape were always working in tandem with the mission of God to see the mission of God fulfilled. So in Atlantic Canada, for instance, in the, in the Atlantic Canada district, in the Church of the Nazarene, they're developing a whole coffee shop ministry where church, the coffee shop, becomes the church. And it's very different from anything that, at least in the history of the Church of the Nazarene, that we might have seen before. Anyway, I won't get into this, but even in the early days of, of the movement of the Nazarene Church, it didn't look very churchy because of the ways in which it was establishing itself in the, the down and out areas of L.A. So all of it, our structures, our buildings, our beliefs, all need to be formed by what God is doing in the moment. And, and it's the spirit that leads us into this. And my prayer is, for us as a church, what is it that God has for us after this pandemic, right? Which is going to change some structures in the ways that we do things. Just even today, I think I'm going to have a lot more digital textbooks than I have before. So I'm not using paper books anymore, right? But the, the digital, whether it's digital or cellulose, doesn't really matter. It's the idea of what's being communicated, right? And, and so we want to be thinking as a church, when we come back together again, what's this going to look like? And it may look very different than, than what we're used to. But the fundamental thing is, is where is God in it? And is everything that we do, does it service 
what God wants to do in the moment to bring redemption, to bring healing, to bring others. And then we could ask just even on a personal level, what might this mean for you? So for me, I've been out hanging out with my neighbors more in the cul-de-sac, just chatting about all kinds of things. But as I'm kind of standing there talking and thinking about all the stuff I'm always on about of, of the Holy Spirit and God using us to impact others like you think about as well, um, what does it mean to broach faith in, in, a, in a conversation where some of my neighbors have no framework for, for faith or those sorts of things that for us, we just kind of uh, talk about as though they're second nature. What does that mean? Where is God in the moment? And so, like Brian said last Sunday, we, we need to carve out time and space in our schedule to build into our lives space for, for other people. Um, we have to be around folks and spend time with them before we can begin to show them that, yeah, Jesus loves them and he wants to hang out with them. And that may not mean bringing them to church on Sunday morning, ever. Because of the ways in which our culture is shifting, that it might be different. I don't know, but it just may be different. But I, but I think the important thing, I know the important thing is, is that whatever our structures look like as we move forward into the future, they have to service the mission of God. That is the most important thing. And, and the mission of God doesn't, it can take a variety of shapes and forms. And, and, and as we as the people of God begin to journey into this, right, I think this will bring us to greater levels of trust, greater levels of victory in seeing how God uses people because we're not operating out of a set of beliefs and ideals that are rooted in another time period that served their purposes well for that time period. Um, but now God is doing something new that requires a new set of ways of operating, a new, new sets of, of understanding. But journeying this, again, let me come back to it, journeying this well starts with trust. Starts with trust in, in, in the goodness of God, starts with trust in that if we are serious about seeing the mission of God and God's mercy and love being made known in the lives of others, he will show us the way. He will show us the pathway that we can bring. We can be agents rather of, of healing and change and transformation that the Holy Spirit could work through us to bring this into the lives of others. And so, yeah, Pentecost, like it's a, it's a transition Sunday. They were waiting, waiting, waiting. Boom, the Holy Spirit comes. And the coming of that Holy Spirit totally changed the, the complexion of what people's relationships look like moving from, for Jews in Jerusalem, from, from temple to synagogue to house church to basilica. And, you know, on it goes. It just... That, that Pentecost moment, because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, changed a lot of the structures. And so what is the thing in your life to which the Spirit is leading you to have greater levels of trust in Him that may result in big changes um, down the road? And so let me, uh, let me pray for us in closing. Lord, I thank you uh, just for your faithfulness to us. I thank you uh, for your goodness to us. 
I thank you, Lord, that you are a relational God and you desire to have relationship with us, to fill us with your Holy Spirit, but also to use us as your people to be agents of, of change for good, for transformation, for holiness, for righteousness um, in the lives of other people. And God, would you enable us to lay down maybe some things that have been long-held ways of relating, ways of believing, ways of, uh, of manifesting our faith that maybe we're good for a certain season, but now because of, of just the changing landscape in which we live, you have something new in mind. And so God, would you help us as a people to see what that may be? Let us repent lord and and uh and turn from those things that that we may have held on to to the detriment of your mission here on earth and and lord let us approach this whole thing with with open hands and open arms um and and just receive what you have for us in these days and uh we just know you're going to do great things and we're trusting you for great things in your name amen well, have a great week, folks, and uh, we'll talk to you all soon.